I'm going to keep you on your toes this morning. Our gospel reading is actually John 1, verses 1 to 18. John 1, verses 1 to 18. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please remain standing as we pray. Lord, we do pray that your word would become alive to us this morning, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might be transformed into more of the image and likeness of your Son. We ask this all through Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If, if you are new to Holy Trinity this morning... It's a really good time for you to be here. The reason being is that we are actually just starting a new eight-week series in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a different book. There's nothing quite like it in the New Testament. No other letter holds up Jesus to such close inspection, nor reveals such profound insight into his power or glory. The whole letter is an invitation to consider Jesus to consider Jesus, to consider who he is, to consider what he has accomplished, and to consider what he has to do with our lives today. Before we dive into our specific passage for this morning, I want to give you a little background information on this book of Hebrews. We have absolutely no idea who wrote this letter. People hypothesize that it could have been the Apostle Paul. Others think Barnabas and others, Apollos. But there's no biblical support for any answer. But we do know a couple things. We know that it was written in the late first century. And the reason is the author writes in a way that seems to say he's a second generation believer. The author knows and considers Timothy, who as you recall was Paul's mentee, the author considers Timothy a brother. And later in the book, he even comments on the death of many first-generation Christian leaders. 
So while we do not know the author by name, we do know that the content is rooted and grounded in the teachings of the apostles and the early church leaders. The audience of Hebrews is likely Jewish Christians. We think this because the author assumes that his readers are familiar with some Jewish concepts. He believes them to be familiar with the story of Abraham, the story of the Exodus, the history of Moses on Mount Sinai, God's covenants, tabernacles, sacrifices, and even early figures like Melchizedek. Some of you may not know who Melchizedek is. I encourage you to go study that at a later date. We also know that this community experienced persecution. In chapter 10, the author notes that this community has endured sufferings. They've been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and they've even had some of their possessions taken away. This is why the author repeatedly says, Hebrews, preserve, hold on, keep the faith. He wants them to hold on to this Christian belief even when it's hard, even when it comes at a cost. And so all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author gives stark warnings to persevere, intense challenges to keep the faith. But this author, this book of Hebrews doesn't stress and lead with fear-mongering. Instead, it leads with exalting Jesus. You know, the author of Hebrews hopes to win our attention and affirmation and exaltation and trust and allegiance and worship for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He desires us to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, Hebrews 3.1. Now, I've spoken to your brain a bit with all that background knowledge. I want you to feel the potential significance of this book Consider this hypothetical situation. You're spending time with a friend who has very little familiarity with Christianity. Out of nowhere, they ask you, who is Jesus? And what's so important about him anyways? Who is Jesus and what's so important about him anyways? How would you answer those questions succinctly and faithfully? Are there any passages that you would turn to in the Bible to help you answer those questions? Now, I bet many of you would turn to John 3:16, but I'd actually suggest that it'd be good to turn to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. And the reason is these verses go straight to the heart of Jesus' identity and accomplishments. These verses directly answer the question of who is Jesus and why does he matter? So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. And you can find that on page 1001. And I do ask that you turn there so that you're not just hearers of God's word, but you're also readers and doers of the word. Page 1001 in those Bibles in front of you. And there are three broad ideas that are highlighted in these verses And this is going to also be our outline for this morning. So note takers, here are your three clear points. I had to do three as a good preacher, three points. And the amazing thing as we consider Jesus is that each of these points begins with the word Jesus. 
Here they are. Jesus, God's Word. Jesus, God Himself. Jesus, God's right hand. Again, that's Jesus, God's Word. Jesus, God Himself. Jesus, God's right hand. Jesus is God Himself. Jesus is God's Word, and Jesus is God's right hand. Let's look at our first point, Jesus, God's Word. Jesus is God's spoken, visible, and final Word. Let's begin looking at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Two words should rock you to the core of your being. God spoke. The creator of the proton and the neutron, the creator of the stars that are in the Great Dipper, that God spoke. And he spoke in a way that his creatures might hear him. God has not spoken in a whisper. He's not spoken just once or in one way. No. This God has spoken, as the text says, at many times and in many ways. God's speech is lavish and it's clear. Romans 1.19 says, For what can be made known about God is plain to all people, because God has shown it to them. God first spoke long ago through the prophets. Prophets were the mouthpieces of God. To briefly remind you, prophets revealed the future. They reminded and even rebuked God's chosen people when they went astray. Their words have been recorded in the Holy Scriptures, recorded in those red Bibles in front of you, We have their voices and witnesses in books of the Bible like Genesis, Numbers, Psalms, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zephaniah. In the first age, God spoke through the prophets. But in the second age, in these last days, in our days, God has spoken to us, how? By his son. In our current moment, we have God's visible word in a son. The ESV text translates it, God has spoken through his son, but the literal translation is this, in the last days, God has spoken to us through a son. And the author is certainly not saying that God has many sons. He's implying that the finest of prophets can't stand in comparison with a son as the means of revelation. Who is the son? It's Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who took on flesh, came to earth, and dwelt among us. When we speak about the Son of God, we're referring to Jesus. And when we're referring to Jesus, we're speaking about the Son of God. Every story in the Bible whispers Jesus' name. The Old Testament looks forward to this Son, and the entire New Testament either records his words and actions or reflects on those words and actions. The text reveals that 
these are the last days. This means that there won't be another season of divine revelation. God's final word to the world is through Jesus Christ. And there are two applications for us through this. Here's the first by way of a question. Have you ever asked God for a specific word to you? Have you ever asked to hear God's audible voice? Well, our text says God has already spoken to you personally. It's through the scriptures. And he's still speaking to you through that same Bible today. Hebrews 4.12 reads, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Do you want to hear God's comforting voice to you personally? Read the Psalms. Do you want to know that you don't have to try harder to please God? Read the book of Romans. Do you want a promise of hope amidst the trials of life? Read the book of Revelation. God has spoken to his people through the prophets and now through his son, Jesus Christ. These are the final and complete words of God. These words are still relevant today because they are still true. And that leads us to our second application. When the world espouses principles that are not in line with the word of God, we know these claims are false. When the world advocates behaviors contrary to the person and work of God, we know that these ways lead to death. Our current society doesn't have new revelation. The truths of Scripture, as revealed in Scripture, are still the truths for the world today. God's words are still final, and they're still authoritative. And our text gives us a reason why. These words are still true. These words of Jesus are still true because he's appointed heir of all things. Notice in our text, it says he's appointed heir of all things. Now, I could rhetorically ask the lawyers out there, what does it mean to be an heir of an estate? It means the heir is entitled to the inheritance of the estate. They control how the remaining resources are used and distributed. So as the appointed heir of all things, Jesus inherits and controls all visible and invisible realities. Every aspect of reality and existence is delegated to the Son. Since he owns all things, Jesus controls all things. This is the reason not a simple sparrow can fall to the ground without God knowing it or allowing it. Matthew 10, 29. This is the reason Jesus can use all situations, both easy and hard, for his divine purposes. This is the reason passages in Scripture make sense. This is why Christians can count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, James 1, because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, Romans 8, 28. Since Jesus is like the chief operating officer of the universe, we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus' role as heir is why we can trust that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. As the heir, Jesus guarantees these promises. But our text doesn't stop there. He's not just the heir of all things. He created all things. The Son of God was at the beginning of the world. John 1 reads, in the beginning of the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word, sorry, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So the son isn't inheriting something new. Rather, he inherits what he himself created. He not only completely understands all of creation, he completely controls it. These are big roles. Big roles that we would only ascribe to God himself. This is the reason for our next point. Jesus, God himself. Jesus, God himself. Jesus bears the same essence and nature of God. We'll read verse 3 in a moment of our text, but I want to call your attention to the word is. It's the only present verb in these four verses. So what I'm about to read is and still is currently true about Jesus, God's Son, God himself. Verse 3, he, Jesus, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The author wants us to realize that when you see the Son, you see the perfect and complete picture of God. Jesus says in John 14, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1 reads, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, God's son, is not a mere prophet. He's not a good teacher. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral exemplar. He's not simply a historical man. The text is clear. Jesus, the son, is equal to God in radiance, glory, and nature. And so the text offers us two helpful analogies to help us understand this relationship between God and the Son. And I want to qualify, they're both imperfect because all analogies fall flat in the presence of God, but they can shed some light on key truths. I want to first touch on this second analogy that the text gives. The text says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So the word imprint is used when a signet ring was pushed into hot wax. It was what was left, it was the action of doing that, it was that imprinting. If God is the crest and the seal, the sun is the wax imprint of those very images. The wax seal is a complete and perfect representation of the ring. But don't misunderstand, the sun is not just a wax copy. The text says that the sun shares in the radiance and glory of God. This leads to our second analogy. The sun is the radiance of God, just like rays of light 
are the radiance of the literal sun in the sky. Let me say that again, because I said sun quite a few times. The sun is the radiance of God, just like the rays of light are the radiance of the literal sun in the sky. Every morning when you look up at the physical sun, you're actually seeing its rays. The sun is only revealed through its emanating rays to you. Rays of light can't exist without the literal sun. And the sun has always been emanating those splendid rays. You can't separate them or say which came first. They are the same and have always existed together. So too with God and the sun. When you see one, you see the other. They can't exist without each other. But the text makes an even stronger claim that God and the sun are the same. It states that the sun shares in the glory of God. And that's vitally important. And here's why. Isaiah 42, 8 reads, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. I want to say that again. My glory I give to no other. The Son of God must be God because he shares in the glory of God. Only God can participate in God's glory. Therefore, if the Son shares in the glory of God, he must be God. We've covered a lot, so let's recap. The Son shares the same essence and nature of God. And so far, our text has revealed two roles of the Son, heir and creator of all things. But we're not done yet. Our text adds another role. Look with me at uh, our verse, and it says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, God's Son, is at the center of the continuing stability of the cosmos. Jesus' ongoing word of power enables existence to continue. Even now, Jesus' word is holding you together. If Jesus were to stop this role, you would cease to exist immediately. Your very livelihood is predicated on his sustaining word. You live, breathe, love, hope, and last because of Jesus' ongoing and sustaining work. And you know that's good news for us? Because we don't have to bear the weight of ultimate responsibility for everything. We can let go of being in control of ourselves and others in our current and future situations. And you know, some of you may be here thinking that you are in control of the world. You're not. Jesus is. You know, I bet you struggle to even control your thoughts, emotions, or reactions to certain situations. You're not in control of your spouse, or your work, or your children, or your future. Jesus is. Jesus, as the heir, creator, and sustainer of life, is in that role. So friends, we can open up our hands and let go a little bit. Because we're not in control. You know, this image of hands is a fitting transition into our final point. It's almost like I planned that. Jesus, God's right hand. 
Jesus, God's right hand. Look with me at our final verse. Final verses. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The right hand of a king was the place of honor. It was typically the seat directly to the right of the king's throne. And an individual would only be invited there if they had done something that made them worthy of that honor. You know, Jesus is currently sitting at the right hand of God. And this location is his final destination. He didn't retire to the beach. He ascended to the right hand of God. And the Son of God rules, reigns, and sustains from this literal location somewhere in the cosmos. And yet he only sat down in this position after making purification for sins. Sin is real, it has consequences, and it requires a solution. Sin impacts every single human in this world. It's written into our DNA because of the consequences of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. According to the book of James, sin leads to death. Sin taints God's people, and its marring effects separate us from God. And so if humans are to be welcomed into God's presence, they must be purified from sin's marring effects. Sin must be washed clean. Our text reminds us that Jesus accomplished this work on behalf of humanity. The Son of God comes down, takes on human flesh in the form of Jesus, and he dies on a Roman cross. And he does so to purify his people from sin. Jesus purifies us from our sins by metaphorically washing us in his sacrificial blood. Jesus literally dies to bear the separating consequences of sin on our behalf so that we might be made right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reads, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' purifying work was and it is final. Notice the text doesn't say, one day Jesus will purify your sins. The text doesn't say Jesus can purify your sins or he should purify your sins. No, the text says, after making purification for sins. Jesus has already made an absolute purification on your behalf. God has sat down because the job is complete. There is no more work to do. You know, when I talk with my neighbors about faith in the afterlife, many are quick to comment on their hopes that their good deeds will outweigh their bad on Judgment Day. You know, candidly, I internally cringe when I hear this. And the reason is, I wonder, do they realize just how black their heart is? Have they faced the depth of their pride, greed, anger, lust, entitlement, bitterness, 
Do they know their full impact on other people? Friends, we are worse off than we think. The depth of our sin and waywardness is deeper, darker, and blacker than we dare imagine. It's impossible for us to have a positive balance sheet of good deeds in the end. But the good news is that we don't have to. Jesus has gifted us life with his death because he has taken the punishment of sins. Our wages are life, not death. This work cost God greatly. It required complete humility, utter self-sacrifice, and total abandonment. Jesus took this on himself and therefore he is exalted above all other spiritual beings, even the angels. The text reads, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited. Our rector, John Yates, is going to speak about angels next week, and I was able to go, phew, I don't want to touch angels. I'll leave that to the Cambridge educated individual. But I do want to comment on this last aspect of verse 4. The Son of God was and will forever be superior to angels. Remember, the Son shares in the essence and nature of God. The Son of God is the creator, heir, and sustainer of the world. These functions are far superior and far loftier than anything angels could ever do. Angels are simply messengers and servants of God and man. Therefore, angels can't hold a candle to Jesus, ever. The text is simply speaking in human terms to honor the incarnated Jesus for his actions on behalf of humanity. To honor, in the words of Philippians 2, 8 to 9, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, Jesus. Jesus, God's word. Jesus, God himself. Jesus, at the right hand of God. I haven't shared these truths this morning to be entertaining or because I like to talk a lot. I've shared them so that you might consider Jesus again. That's our aim over these next eight weeks. That's our aim over the rest of our lives. Friends, let's consider Jesus. Let's pray. God, I do pray that your people might have a deeper admiration for, trust in, and allegiance toward Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, you are worthy to be considered for to you belong all glory, honor, dominion, and authority now and forever. May you capture our imaginations and encourage us to keep the faith even when times are tough. God, I do pray that you would help us consider Jesus all of our days. Amen.